Good morning. Welcome. It's good to see all of you here, and I see we have some visitors, so welcome to you. It's good to have you worship with us this morning. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. Lord, thank you for sending your Son to this earth. And Lord, as we celebrate that this season, I pray that we wouldn't get so busy that we really forget what the season is all about, like David said, and I pray that we would take the time to, to worship and adore our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would bless the service this morning, be with us as we study your word and as we uh, sit in our Sunday school classes. I pray that you bless each class, be especially with Ken as he preaches up in Elkhart. Lord, I pray a blessing on him, and I pray that their service there would bring you honor and glory also. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. As many of you know, I do lawn care for a business, and one of the pieces of machinery that I use is a fertilizer spreader that you stand on, and it's a, it's a zero-turn spreader. There's a hopper out front that you put fertilizer in, and as I've ran that for quite a few years, there's something that I've learned, and that is when you get that hopper full of fertilizer, it makes the front end very heavy. And so what happens is when you get on a hill and you, that thing turns downhill, it's really hard to control it. And I don't know if you're familiar with a zero-turn mower, but if you've ever ran a zero-turn mower, it's the same principle. And so you, you always want to keep that front end of those mowers pointed up and they'll go, but if you get headed downhill, you, you just can't stop it. And so I was on a job, and this job has a pond, and it's right along a road. It's a road, and then there's 40 feet of lawn, and the, the lawn just is a nice straight grade right down to the pond. And so I anticipated this, and I got ready to do that hill, and I made sure that my hopper was basically empty so it's as light as possible. This machine has a mechanism that when you step on a pedal, there's it locks the front casters, and so the caster, the front wheels just normally can turn whichever way, and so you can lock those so that they stay rigid, and that helps the whole hill, that way it doesn't want to go downhill. And so as I came into this, this final pass, I was going to be just like five feet from the water, and as I came into this pass, I locked those casters, and I felt very confident coming into that turn, and I was going along, and things were going fine, but Sometimes those casters don't quite lock right. And so I thought, well, I wonder if those are for sure locked. And without thinking, I turned downhill to check if they were locked. And they weren't. They weren't. And that thing immediately, they, it turned downhill, and I'm now facing the water. And so I, this has happened before on other jobs. And typically, right when you get to the edge, the tires kind of go into the water, and it stops, and you get out, and I... I get it, you know, redirected. And so I, I pulled back, and there was just nothing there. I mean, it was like I was on a slope of ice. And so I thought, well, I'll boom into the water, and I'll get this thing stopped. And I boomed into the water, and it kept right on going. And I just, I just kept pulling back, and finally it started going bloop, 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 bloop. And so I reached up, and I turned the key off, and I stepped back, and that thing just went right out into the pond and one tank in the back floated up to the surface. And it was totally submerged, pretty much. 
You know, there is something that I, I learned through that. Well, there's a couple things that I learned. For one, every time I get on that job, I remember what happened that day. And I, there's a couple things. I make sure that hopper is empty. I try to wait until the grass is for sure dry so I have good traction. And another thing is I never point downhill to see, to see if I have traction or not. I always try to go uphill now. And so I've learned a valuable lesson, and that lesson um, has, has served me fairly well. I didn't forget. It's probably been, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say close to seven or eight years now that have passed since that happened. It's been a long time. But I don't forget. And for sure when I get on that job... Every time it goes through me when I go, I was just did it again in the last month, and as I go past that place, it just goes through me, and I think, oh my, what if? And, and the homeowner is always willing to remind me about the time that I washed my spreader in his pond, and they say, oh, we're going to have to pull you out today. So I've learned from that, and I, I, I change, I, I do something different so that I don't repeat that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, as we come into this chapter, I'm not going to start at the the beginning of the chapter. We're going to come in about midways through this chapter. God is giving the children of Israel some specific instructions You see, the children of Israel, if you remember, they were in Egypt, and they were captives in Egypt. And God sent Moses and Aaron in to to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he did that, if you remember, there was a bunch of plagues that happened until God finally changed Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh told the children of Israel that they could go. And so they left. And that's a, a long story in itself. But the children of Israel left. And then they went to spy out Canaan, remember the promised land where God wanted to take them. And if you remember, some of the men were, were frightened because of the land. There were great riches in the land, they said, but they were frightened that they couldn't overtake it because of the people that lived there. And so God sent them out to the wilderness, and they were out in the wilderness for, what, 40 years, wandering around in this wilderness. And so now, today in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're to that point where they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so God is giving the children of Israel warning through Moses. And so Moses is is telling them what they can expect when they get to the land of Canaan. And he's warning them. and And he's trying to prepare them, prepare their minds and prepare their hearts so that they realize what is going to happen. There's, there's good things in the land of Canaan, don't get me wrong, but he's also giving them warning. So that's where we come into chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. Let's start reading in verse 11. It says, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. You know, when we hear the word beware, when we see a sign, uh, beware of the dog, it's a warning, right? It's to get our attention, saying, pay attention, listen up. And that's what Moses is doing here. He's saying, beware, pay attention. Because he's warning them that they, it's possible that they may forget the Lord. It's possible that 
they're not going to know that they're going to forget God. And so he's he's calling them to attention. He says, in case, in my own words, in case you find yourself not following God's commands, beware. And then in verse 12 it says, verse 12 and 13, lest when you have eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and let's stop right there, when you have eaten and are full, we just came through Thanksgiving. And I don't know how you find it, but our family Thanksgiving, usually there's a lot of pretty good food. And so what happens? We, you know, we, we don't do a whole lot in the morning, and then we get together as a family, and we eat all this food, and about 1 o'clock, I'm just ready to go into a coma, you know, just put my feet up and, and let me sleep. And that's exactly what he's warning him them of, of, of in this passage is, Beware lest you have all this abundance, which they weren't used to. As if they came from Egypt and the land and, and wandering the wilderness. And now he's saying, all of a sudden, you're going to experience all this food. And he's saying, be careful lest you fall into that state of coma and you're not aware of what's going on. Continuing in verse 13, it says, And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied... So not only is he warning them about the food and and wanting to relax, he's also warning them about the riches that they're going to find in the land of Canaan. And he's saying when when your herds, when when things multiply and when when times are good, and and I'm assuming some of these these men were probably going to be businessmen, right, in the land of Canaan. And so he's saying... Beware that when, when business is going good, when, you, when your flocks multiply and, and your riches multiply, beware that you don't fall into that coma like we do after a Thanksgiving meal, that we become disillusioned, we're not really aware of what's going on, we're not very sharp, you know, we're, we're kind of slow and groggy. And he's warning them to be careful lest they find themselves in that state of mind. So he's trying to set them up for what they're going to experience in Canaan. And then in verse 14 it says, Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of, Can- land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And so this is the result of what happens if they find themselves in that state of mind where they're lax, they're not alert, they're not aware of how these things are affecting them. He says, lest your heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God. Having a proud heart, a heart that is self-sufficient, I can take care of myself. Not only am I capable, but the land around me is plenteous. And so I don't need God. I can do it. I can provide for myself. He's warning them, beware that that doesn't happen. Verse 15, it says, Who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were the fiery, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water? Who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint? He's calling them back to remembrance of what God did for them in the wilderness. You see, these people found themselves in Egypt, and even though they were... They were slaves. 
Yet their basic needs were probably provided for. And suddenly they found themselves in the wilderness and basic things like food and water. They didn't have them. And so God had to do miracles in, in different instances as they were in the wilderness. If you remember, they would, they would strike a rock and water would come out or he would speak to the rock and water would come out. Or if they didn't have food, what did God do? Did he provide food? Not only did he provide food, he invented food. Food like they had never had before that just fell out of the heaven, right? And so he provided for them in a miraculous way. And what Moses is concerned about is that when they get to the land of Canaan, they're enjoying all these riches that they have, that they forget that when they were in, really when they were in need, God provided for them. And he's saying, beware lest you, when you get to the land of Canaan, you forget who's providing these good things for you in the land of Canaan. Let's continue to read. Verse 16, who, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee. His fear is that they're going to take the credit for all that they're experiencing to themselves. How many of you are familiar with the bumper sticker, I built this? Does that ring a bell with any of you? I built this, or I built that, or I built this business? Any of you? A couple of you? Remember? It's been a few years ago. Who said it? Or who said the statement that brought that statement on? Obama. Obama, right? So Obama was giving, when he was president, he was giving a speech. I think it was in Pennsylvania. And in the middle of his speech, I think what he was trying to, to get across was that if you are doing well, if you are running a business that is profitable, you didn't just... You can't come up with that on your own, but it's because of the nation that you live in and the structures that are in place that allow you to run a business to be profitable. And so he made the statement, he said, basically, in my words, he said, if you have a business that is profitable, just remember, you didn't build that. And that outraged people. People became angry because they said, who's he to say that we didn't build it? If I wouldn't have put the work and the effort into it, it would have never happened. And that's why you see that bumper sticker that says, I built this. And it, so it was a reaction to that. And you know what? There's something inside of us that sometimes I want to think that way. I want to think that, you know what? It's because of, of my, good, my good handling of, of my business or it's because of the way I manage things that it's, that it's profitable. And I, and I want to claim some of that. And I want to say, you know what? I built this. And that's a little bit what Moses is warning the children of Israel. He's saying, when you go into the land of Canaan, be careful that you don't develop that attitude that, I built this. I did this. But remember who it is that gave you provision to start your business, to do your work. Who it is that provided all these, these riches that you enjoy. Don't forget who gave those to you. He goes on in verse 18, and now he's starting, uh, the first part of this was a warning to them 
And now he's giving them some instruction and also telling them what is going to happen, what the results are going to be if they develop that type of an attitude. Verse 18 says, actually, let's go up to 17. Verse 17, and thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. Or in other words, I did this. I built this. Now going on to verse 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he, it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. I think he's reminding them that they need to remember that it was because of God. He gave them the ability to work. He's the one that provided the means, the riches that they found in that land, that they could even have a job, that they could even uh, start their business or whatever they did. It was because of God and the, and the, and the land that he placed them in that were, they were able to thrive. Verse 19 telling them what the results are going to be if they're not careful. And it says, And it shall be, if thou do at all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. And so he warns them, he said, Be careful, because if you start getting distracted and you don't follow God, and you forget what he did, you will perish. In fact, he goes on to the next verse, in verse 20, and he, and he gives an example, and he says, as the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face. And as you remember, the children of Israel, they, they came into this promised land, and, they, and we have these, these stories about how they overthrew these, these cities. And one that comes to mind is Jericho. And, and as they overthrew those cities, and he's saying, be careful, because the same way that you overthrew those cities, in the same way... You will perish if you forget who I am. If you forget what I did bringing you up to this point, and you, for, you forget that I am the one that brought you here, it says you will perish. Don't forget. Don't forget lest ye perish. Last part of 20 says, So shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Two things, if you follow other gods or if you don't follow the commands of the Lord, he says, you will perish. Just like you destroyed those nations, you will be destroyed. He's warning them, beware of the riches that you are about to face. You know, I have to wonder sometime. Sometimes we just came through Thanksgiving season and now we're going into Christmas. And if there were a Canaan land, let's just say we experience a lot of blessings as North Americans, as Northern Indiana people. Let's just face it, we are blessed. In fact, the way we live life 
is most people in most parts of the world can't imagine living life like we live, day in and day out. We think it's normal. It's just how it happens. But it's not normal. And I think if there were a Canaan, we're maybe living in it. And does God hold those warnings that God gave through Moses to the children of Israel? Are those still applicable to us today? Are we living in the land of Canaan as such? Are we experiencing those blessings like the children of Israel did when they got to the land of Canaan? And if we are, how are we doing with them? Did God change? Did God change his expectations? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think if we were honest with ourselves, each one of us would have to admit we are rich people. We are wealthy people compared to the majority of the world. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he gives us a warning, beginning to read in verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. How are you doing? Are you content with what God has given you? Am I content with what God has given me? Verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You know, who gave you what you have? Who gave you the wealth that you have? Do you have a bumper sticker in your mind that says, I built this. I'm a pretty good manager. And I've been able to run this business. I've been able to take care of our family's finances pretty well. And we're doing pretty good. Is there a bumper sticker in your heart that says, I built this. I did this. Who gave us what we have? Verse 8, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. You know, God says, if you have food and you have clothes, be content. If you have shelter, be content. And all of us have those things. How much is enough? If I'm not content with where I'm at today, what will it take till I am content? How much do I need? How new a vehicle do I need? How many houses do I need? How big does my house need to be? At what point do I find myself saying, I have enough. I was challenged some years ago by a couple from Kansas. And Kansas is not known to be um, financially blessed or, or just flourishing with cash. 
people do well there, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying it's not in northern Indiana. They do not have the possibilities of good trades and jobs like we do. But there was this couple, and I remember him saying, and he wasn't saying it in a, in a boastful way, but he said, my wife and I have a goal every year, and that goal is to see if we can give more this year than what we did last year. And he said, that's always our goal. We always look at how little can we live on so that we can give more and give more than what we gave last year. And I thought, I think that would be good for me to look at how little I can live on, how much I can give. Is that my vision? Or am I always looking at what else I can have? Verse 8. Sorry, verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Do you desire riches? What are your goals? Really, what are your goals? If you would write them out, is that towards the top? Well, I want to be here. I want to live this type of a life, this lifestyle. I want to have this much saved by such a such time in my life. Are those your goals? And if they are, if they are my goals, do I realize that I'm opening myself to temptation? It says, but they that will be rich, they that desire to be rich, they have that goal. They're maybe not even there yet, but they just want to be there. Open themselves to temptations. You see, when that is my goal, I begin to, sometimes I make decisions based off of that. I take chances based off of that that I normally wouldn't because my end goal is I want to be here financially. And so I'll, I'll make some decisions to try to get me there quicker. And we open ourselves to temptation. And the other thing is, when we get there, when we have that financial means, we face new temptations that we've never faced before. Do we realize that? That once we have wealth, there are new temptations that we face. I find it word in verse 9 very interesting. It says, he's talking about desiring this, he says, which drown men in destruction and perdition. These things will drown us in ruin. You know, drowning is an, is an interesting, it's not interesting, it's a terrible way to die. But the interesting thing about drowning is often, like, the person cannot help himself. Like, the only way he's going to be saved or be helped is if somebody helps him. Somebody has to physically help him. And the other thing is, often, often when drownings occur, the people around him, if they're not paying attention, are not aware that it happened. You often hear this story of a you know, group of young men or a group swimming, and suddenly when they go to go home, somebody's not there. They disappeared. You see, when you're drowning, for some reason, I don't, I'm not sure, 
I'm not exactly sure why, but it, it seems like you're maybe, you, you're not able to catch it that, you know what, I'm drowning and get somebody's attention. The, the person is, maybe, maybe they're trying to help themselves, next thing they know, they, they suck water in, they, they, and now they can't yell that, I need help, I'm drowning. You see, if that would happen, I think often somebody could come save them. But they get caught up in it, and they're, they're not aware of what's going on, and suddenly it's too late. And he says, that's exactly what riches do. They drown men. I get, that's maybe not my goal is to be a rich person or to have all this stuff, but suddenly I catch my, I, I'm, I'm caught up with this, and I, I it's, sometimes it's too late. It's too late for me to say, I need help. Help. Can you save me? We drown. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Love of wealth opens a door for evil. And I think when we shift, when our focus begins to shift off of God, to shift off of kingdom focus, and to begin to focus on wealth, and business, or what I can experience, and do, and acquire, we begin to get cold spiritually, if we're not aware of it. And the danger is that we drown, and we don't say, I need help. So we have two warnings now about affluence and riches. The first one is in Deuteronomy where he says, if you don't follow God, you shall perish, it says. If you don't follow God, you don't, don't obey his commandments, you shall perish. The second one is in 1 Timothy where he says, beware lest you drown. You know, many of you listen to that story about my fertilizer spreader, and the next time you get on your mower and you face any type of hill, you're probably going to test it out. Or you're going to remember, keep it pointed uphill, right? Because you're going to recall the story I told you of my experience. Actually, you can learn from that experience without ever having to do it personally if you believe what I said. If you believe what I said happened, happened, you can learn from that, right? And so you can learn two ways. You can learn from your own history or you can choose to learn from my history and it, it could save you from a wet mower at the least. And so it is possible for you to learn from history. And, and we often say, well, history is the best teacher. 2020, hindsight is always 2020, we say, right? So once we get through something, we can always look back and say, well, we should have done it this way. But do we learn from history? Or do we tend to repeat history? Are we open to learning from others' history?
or will we continue repeating history? Our forefathers have a story that I think we should be aware of. In 1525, Europe was in the middle of the Reformation, and one of the most powerful revivals that happened in all time in the church happened during that time. And there were three men that stepped away from following the state church. That was Conrad Grebel, Felix Mons, and George Blorock, and many of you recognize their names. One of the things that they stepped away from that the state church, which was Roman Catholic, forced them to do was infant baptism. And so when your, when your child was born, you would, you would bring it, and the Catholics practiced this, where they baptized the infant to save them. And these men said, that's not right. As we read Scripture, we think it's clear that you should be baptized upon confession of your faith, and there's no way that a child can confess faith. And so they said, we think it's important that you're baptized once you understand what following Christ is all about. And so these, these three men, they were baptized again upon the confession of their faith. And this created an outrage in the state church. And we don't even, like state church doesn't even register in our minds because like we, I can't even imagine that. So state church means our government tells us we're going to be Roman Catholic. How would we react to that today? But that's what happened. These men stepped away from that and said, we're not going to do that. And so they, they baptized one another. And they started practicing a believer's baptism. Well, the state church obviously didn't like this. And they reacted to it and they began to persecute these men. And two of these men were actually martyred for their belief. That was Felix Mons and Joel... Uh, George Blorock, they were both killed because of the stand that they took. Well, gospel was proclaimed at this time, and, and these, these men and just different, different men that, that joined them, they began to proclaim the Lord, and what happened was this group called Anabaptists or Rebaptizers were persecuted for the belief that they took that you should confess Christ in order to be baptized. And so persecution happened. Well, what happens when you're persecuted? They started to leave their land. So they started to go out and try to flee persecution. Well, what happened because they were on fire was that just took God's word all over, right? And so there were, there were other um, uh, nations and other countries that were affected by this. And eventually um, this, this group, started, there were different splinters that happened off of group, this group, but eventually there was this group led by Menno Simons, who were a group that said, not only are we rebaptizers, we're also going to be non-resistant, and so we're not going to take up arms, and they were referred to as the Mennonites, hence our name, and that is what their, that is what their belief was, was, was non-resistance, and baptism upon confession of faith. And so this, this group grew, 
And this group started planting churches. And eventually, the government started tolerating them. The government started saying, you know what? These are actually pretty good citizens. And I imagine some of them said, you know what? We noticed that when they're in our community, there's all these little businesses that start up and things flourish. And we enjoy that. And so they started being at peace with them. The persecution began to die. And the Mennonites did well. They flourished. Society began to accept them and their hard work. And they were very adaptable to wherever they moved. And it started to earn them a place in the business world. People started looking up to them saying, these guys know how to do business. They know how to run a business. Many of the Mennonites earned reputation as excellent weavers. And some of them actually started or owned some of the largest weaving companies in their nation. The one family business employed 3,000 people, which was half the town. Half the town worked at this Mennonite person's business. And so they were having a, a good effect on the community, we would say. Other Mennonites began to establish shipping companies. And they would, they would have these companies that would ship goods all over. And I'm assuming a lot of these goods that they were shipping were also produced by the Mennonites. And so they, would, they had these shipping companies, but there was one area that was the East Indies Company, and, and the area that this East Indies Company would ship to, there were a lot of pirates in that area. And in order to have a shipping company that would go through that area, you had to protect your ships. And these were non-resistant people. And so they, they decided, well, we just won't ship to the East, with the East Indies Company. And so they did. They stayed away from that because they were non-resistant. And they, they shipped this direction, so that they could just ship without having to defend their ships. They began to control the overseas trade in such areas as Greenland, and they also controlled the whale and the herring industry of Holland. See, they're very industrious people. They worked hard, and when they set their mind to do something, they got it done. And these, these people, they weren't stingy, but they were also very generous. Matter of fact, there were many people that immigrated to America, and they were financed by these Mennonites. They would give them money so that they could, they could immigrate to America. Not only that, they gave to persecuted groups outside of their own Mennonite tradition. And so they donated money, and they, they, they gave to organizations and to people who were persecuted. They weren't stingy. They gave away of their wealth. Something happened in the 1600s. There was what they call the Dutch Golden Age, and the Mennonites were very much participants in this. You see, this was a time when everything flourished. Times were good. Businesses were doing good. People were buying products. They were shipping products. And the Mennonites 
cranked up production. And they joined in. They accumulated great wealth through this time. They became very influential members in their towns. And they began becoming elected officials. Maybe just in small ways in their towns at first. But they began getting involved with politics. You know, the Mennonite church has probably never enjoyed so much influence in a nation than at this time. They were right in the middle of it. They were able to affect the people around them. But it also began to affect them. You see their wealth that they were given combined with their frugal lifestyle allowed them to become very, very wealthy people. And these Mennonites, they began to build elaborate churches. So they, they were probably, they, some of these probably grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and they had these great cathedrals and then they were persecuted so they were hiding in fields and, and whatever in, in basements and meeting at night. And now they're not persecuted and now God has blessed them. And so they have all this wealth, so what should they do with it? And so they began to build elaborate churches to worship in. Some of them began to build large estates with fancy gardens and all kinds of things. Some of them began collecting valuable antiques and different works of art. And you see some of those shipping companies who refused to ship with the East Indies because of all the pirates. Suddenly they had all this wealth, that they, all, all these goods that they were producing, and they needed to ship them. And so they needed, they needed to ship in more places. So they began to mount cannons on the front of their ships. Now they could go, they could ship to the East, Indi East Indies. They could ship wherever they wanted to because their ships were protected. I don't know how you get there. Did they justify it in their minds at first that, well, we'll just mount cannons and we're not going to load them? I don't know how they got there. But these were non-resistant Mennonites who made that choice. Higher edu education began, became a priority. One of the things they did is they built a college to send their ministers to. I wonder if a lot of them probably grew up in, this, in the Roman Catholic Church and they remembered how those, how those men could speak so eloquently and suddenly we've got these hick preachers who just don't have a lot of training and it's kind of hard to listen to them. So why don't we build a college and why don't we give them some instruction. So they build a college, and they begin to train their ministers. These Mennonites became educated, wealthy, and very politically influential. And something happened in the middle of all this prosperity and freedom. 
members begin to leave their faith. And I don't believe it was just the tradition of Mennonite. I believe it was their faith and their belief. Members begin to leave in a trickle and then in a steady flow. In, in 1700, there were 160,000 in their group. A hundred years later, in 1800, there were 28,000. 160,000, and a hundred years later, 28,000. What caused that? There's an excerpt in the Martyr's Mirror written by a minister during this time, and I'm going to read what he says. This is his explanation of what he feels caused this. He says, In former times, in the times of the cross, when men could assemble only under the peril of their lives, our zeal drove us in the night and at unseasonable times into nooks and corners and into fields and woods. How precious was that one hour which could be employed in stirring up and establishing one another in godliness. How the souls then thirsted and hungered after divine food. How pleasantly then tasted the words of godliness. But how is it now? Temporal pursuits have the preference throughout. The oxen must first be proved and the field be inspected before one can come to the heavenly marriage. Simplicity is changed into pomp and display. Possessions have increased, but in the soul there is leanness. Clothes have become costly, but the inward ornament has perished. How feeble you hear and consider the word of God, since your thoughts are entangled in earthly vanities. How seldom and how slothful the works of godliness are practiced. And how busy and zealous you are throughout in amassing money and prosperity and property, and in feasting yourselves on pleasure. The parents become rich, the children luxurious and wanton. The world caressed them, and in course of time they became respected and lifted up. The reproach of the cross was relinquished, and the honor of this world stepped into its place. That was his belief of what caused the falling away. Brothers and sisters, I believe there has been a, a mass change in the affluence of the world around us, of the people around us, and of ourselves. There's a change. What you experience today is vastly different than what your parents experienced growing up. And my fear is that it's affected us. My fear is we're drowning. And I'm not even sure we can say help anymore. I'm afraid we can't.
our focus has changed. Our focus, like this man said, has changed from godliness and having a passion for that. A kingdom passion. A focus on Christ's kingdom. To a focus on gaining wealth. To a focus on business. And now I don't have time for Christ's kingdom. I'm not that old, but I'm amazed in the last five years how much I see on social media and in just the internet itself of coaching that takes on, that, that, is, that is being done. And don't get me wrong, I think there are, there are times and places where we need help. And I think we need to be, avail ourselves of some of that use. But I'm amazed at how prevalent it is in our Christian circles. And like, like I said, I want to be careful. I think there is a place for that. But our tendency is I shouldn't say our tendency is. Let's just say where my efforts and my ambitions and my wealth is is where my heart is going to be. That's my concern. What am I spending my time and efforts on? What am I pursuing? What is my end goal? There's a story in Scripture about a young man who came to Christ. In Matthew chapter 19. And this man was a wealthy man. And he came and he said, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus gave him a few basic things. He says, keep the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. And this man said, I've done all of those things. And then Jesus said, Go take all you have and sell it and give to the poor and come and follow me. And it says, but when that young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, it wasn't worth it to him. He enjoyed the life that he was living. He wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. And as that man walked away, then it says, then, Jesus, then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of God. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And like I said this morning, I think riches, we are all rich people. And Jesus gives that warning saying, 
when we are affected, when we, when we live in so much affluence, it is going to be hard to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed. They thought, well, Jesus, we thought you came to save people, and now you're saying there's no hope. They were amazed, saying, who then can be saved? As we look our, ourselves today, as we look at the affluence that is around us, that we find ourselves in northern Indiana living here. And we say, well, we're all rich people. How can we be saved? It says, but Jesus beheld them and said unto them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible. Or you skip down to verse 29, and Jesus continues, he says, And everyone that forsaketh, that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You see, we are such a rich nation. We've experienced these things. We think it's normal. But the people that we look at, the people that we idolize and that we say, I want to be like them or I want to follow them so I can end up where they're at in this world, Jesus says, in his kingdom, they're going to be last. And it's the people who don't, really matter here on earth, who aren't flashy, who don't have a lot, but they had time to care. They had time to care. They gave what they could, and they served me faithfully. They will be first. My fear is that our blessings could become a curse. Let's kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord. Thank you for this scripture. Lord, thank you that your words are truth. And God, I pray that you would help us to live out faithful lives serving you. Lord, help me to evaluate my walk with you and the way that I live life here on this earth. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would take into account the things that you've given to us and how we're using those, how we're doing with them. Have they affected us? Lord, I pray that your spirit would touch our hearts, help us to be sensitive and to be open to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.